Well, I always, um, I always wanted a brother. Um, I always felt like I was missing out growing up without one. I mean, I love, I have two younger sisters. I absolutely love my two sisters, but I just really always wanted a brother. And every time I would tell my dad that, he would read me this story. Um, and it's an awful story, right? I mean, the first story of the very first brothers is pretty rough, y'all. I mean, did you, did you hear what happens in that first story? And, and as we think about that story in light of what we've been looking at, we've been looking at the story of God. And we've been looking at how it all started out of love. But then last week we began looking at sin and how sin kind of breaks into the story through a lie. And how through that story of the fall that we looked at last week, we see that really every sin begins with believing a lie. Ultimately believing the lie that God doesn't love me, that, that God cannot be trusted. So we, we started looking at that last week, but then here we go, just, you know, a chapter later, and all of a sudden, it's not just about lies anymore, it's about murder. It goes from bad to worse in, in, the, in the amount of just one generation. So what can we learn from this story? What can we learn about our story and the role we play in God's story through this story? Well, I think we need to start by just looking at these two brothers, You've got Cain, the firstborn, and his name actually means to acquire, to get, to possess, which interestingly foreshadows his proclivity, which we'll see in a little bit. And then you have Abel, the younger brother, whose name means vapor or breath, which is ominously accurate. And so in this story, you have Abel being accepted by God and Cain being rejected. But as you heard it read, it's kind of difficult to see why. There doesn't seem to be much difference in the two of them. But that's where the brilliance of this story comes in. Because in this story, you don't have one brother who's running around, boozing it up, you know, living the crazy life, and the other one going to church and, and bringing his offering. You don't see one working hard and the other one taking advantage of the system. You don't have that. The only obvious difference between these two brothers is one is a farmer and one is a rancher. That one brings an offering of fruit uh, because that's his source of income and one brings an animal because that's his source of income. But both are bringing an offering. They're both doing God's will. They're both seeking God. So what's the problem? All we're told is that when Abel offered his gift and when Cain offered his, God blessed and showed favor to Abel which probably meant he prospered him, probably meant he made him successful, let things go well for him in his life, and he didn't favor Cain. Why? What's going on? Well, it's very subtle, and it's supposed to be subtle, because this is a story not primarily about human behavior, but about the human heart. As we look at this story, we are being invited to look at the heart, to look at our hearts, because our hearts determine how we live in God's story. So what do we learn about the human heart? Well, we begin to see the difference between Cain's heart and Abel's through the careful descriptions of the offerings. Verses three and four, it says this. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now this is very subtle. But think about this, all right? Every year, a rancher, the income of a rancher is directly proportional to how many more calves or colts or lambs are being born. 
So of course, most of us, if we were ranchers, we would wait and give the Lord his offering after we see how many animals are actually born in a year. If you're gonna have 12 animals born that year, then yeah, then I'll give God one or two, you know, I'm a tither, or, or maybe I'll give three, just give a little bit more just to make sure I'm covered. But if you're like Abel, you send your first one born. But what if there's only two born that whole year? Then you've given God 50%, and that's crazy. But Abel does it. You see, in Abel, we see a kind of person who is open-hearted, who is a kind, has kind of a, a joyous abandon with his things. We see someone whose dependence is on God in a way that's very childlike. In Abel, we see someone who still trusts God. Neither my wife and I are, are numbers people or organized people. Um, there's not an ounce of Taipei blood in either one of us, and, uh, uh, and that's really hard. So some of you I know have a Taipei spouse and you're like so annoyed with them, be thankful for them because when neither of you are, it's really hard. So I mean, when we have to look at our books or do our budget or pay our taxes or even just paying our bills every month, it is an exhausting endeavor because neither of us wanna do it because neither of us wanna focus and, and have to be that precise with anything. And so recently, um, I learned that I had not been tithing for a while. See, we had lost a card, and so we had to have it canceled, and I never went into that automatic tithe take-her-outer thing and fixed it, um, and I would be a total mess without automatic bill pay. Uh, and, and I have to, I mean, I did, I did notice, like I did notice that we had more money every month, um, and I just thought God was miraculously making our money, you know, grow, and so I was happy about that. But then when I discovered um, what had happened, um, and I went back and looked to see how far back this went, um, it was pretty substantial. And y'all, I really wrestled with whether or not I should just start fresh that day. You know, like his mercies are new every day. It's all about grace. Practice what you preach, Zach. Um, but, but I knew that if I did that, my heart would be in danger. I knew if I even waited to fix it or if I just tried to even just make payments over the next several months to try to catch up, that my heart would be in danger. And so last Sunday, I wrote a check to Summit that was a very large amount for me to write. And um, I did it. And then I went out to my car and it broke down in the parking lot. So here's the thing. If I hadn't already handed over the money, I know it would have been so easy in my own mind to justify waiting to catch up because of the issue with my car. But see, there would be a price to that because my heart would be in danger. See, there's a reason Jesus talked so much about money when he was here on earth. And it wasn't because God needed our money, but because he knew there was no greater competition for our hearts. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, your heart will be also. And in Abel, we see where his heart is. It's with God. We see someone who has not believed the lie that God can't be trusted. We see someone who freely gives to God with a kind of childlike trust. He's one who lives as if his heart has found its rest in God, to quote St. Augustine from last week. See, when we look at Abel, we see a different kind of spirit in him, a different level of commitment, a different kind of joy, a different kind of freedom that we don't see in Cain. 
But now you might be thinking, all right, well, Zach, you're reading a lot into this text. All the text says is that Cain offered some fruit. He still offered some fruit. And, and we don't even know how much he offered. He maybe offered the full tithe. So is what, what I'm, am I saying that in order to be right with God, you have to offer more than what God asks? And if I am saying that, that, then I'm going against exactly what I said last week when we looked at Eve and we saw that when the lie entered into Eve's brain, what happened? She began to exaggerate the difficulty of God's word. She made God harsher and more difficult to please. So is, is, that, is that what this text is implying? Well, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 11 actually, there's some commentary about this story. We're told in Hebrews 11 that Abel made his sacrifice and offering in faith, but Cain did not. That was the difference. It wasn't about the size of the offering, but it was about faith. And not faith in the sense of believing in God, because Cain obviously believed in God. He was talking to him. It'd be hard not to believe in him. But it was faith in reference to his heart. What was his heart motivation? After Cain and Abel's parents, Adam and Eve, sinned, God comes to them and he tells them, he explains to them what's happened. He tells them why they're feeling shame. He tells them why they're wanting to hide from each other and wanting to hide from him. He tells them why all of creation now looks and feels different. It's now broken. It's now a mess. There's now pain and suffering and evil. Now their hearts would break. But he also tells them it won't always be like this. He also tells them that he has a plan. That one day he'll make this their perfect home again. That one day he'll wipe away every tear from their eye. That one day he will come and rescue them. But he doesn't fully explain it. In fact, he doesn't really explain it at all. He just gives them one verse one verse in which to place their hope, and it's Genesis 3.15. In Genesis 3.15, God promises to Adam and Eve that one of their descendants would crush the serpent's head, that one day sin and death would be forever destroyed. He makes a promise to save the world, and that's all we know. That's all they knew, and it's pretty vague. Now, there are two reasons that I can think of to bring an offering to God. There are two reasons to put your money in the basket. There's two reasons to bring a lamb or an offering, whether you're living in the time of the Old Testament or the New Testament or today. It doesn't matter. There's only two reasons to give God anything. One is to give God an offering in response to salvation, and the other is to give it as a means of salvation, as a way of getting God to bless you, to reward you, to answer your prayers, to take you to heaven. Those are the only two reasons. Now, here's the amazing thing one commentator says about, I, about Abel. He says, even in the rudimentary form that the gospel existed in Abel's mind, the gospel that he understood based on that one verse, Genesis 3.15, Abel put his full trust in God's promise of salvation, that Abel gave his offering as a response to God's salvation. But here's what we see with Cain. Earlier this year, we looked at the parable of the prodigal son, and we looked a lot at the older brother and the older brother's heart. And we saw by looking at this parable, we saw that if you are a sinner saved by grace alone, 
If you, if you know that, if you know you've been saved, not based on anything you've done, but out of sheer grace, then everything you have, everything that's given to you, everything that you experience is just gravy. If you're a sinner saved by grace, every blessing, every good thing that you have is just icing on the cake. But if you're an older brother, you believe God owes you because you've worked so hard, because you've obeyed, because you've done everything right. You believe you're saved by works and that God is in fact in your debt. So the way you know whether you're a sinner saved by grace or you're an older brother saved by works, because sometimes the actions, the outward behavior of both of them look, look pretty similar, like the actions of Cain and Abel. How you know the difference is when suffering comes. When God doesn't let life go the way you think it ought to go, when God isn't blessing you the way you think or prospering, prospering you, an older brother gets mad. When Cain sees Abel being blessed over him, when Cain starts seeing all these things go right for Abel, he becomes murderously angry. He's angry at God, he's angry at his brother. He's so angry at God, in fact, that when God approaches him, he says, hey, I'm not my brother's keeper. I mean, he's speaking to the creator of the universe, the Almighty. He's essentially saying, hey, get out of my face. But as you read the story, as you look at their actions, it's so hard to see that difference. It's so hard to see the difference in their hearts because they're both hardworking. They're both going to church, as it were. They're both trying to do God's will, but the difference lies in their heart what they're fundamentally trusting in their heart. What are you trusting? Where's your heart? Are you looking to other things or yourself for your salvation or are you looking to God? See, that's what makes the difference. That's what makes the, the difference between being a grumpy, angry, furious Cain, always mad at how the world is going, always upset because someone else is getting ahead, always competitive. Or are you open-hearted and free like Abel? Do you wanna be Cain or do you wanna be Abel? Cain's hate Abel's, but Abel's don't hate Cain's. Cain's denounce, they demonize, they're always grumpy, they're always anxious. Why? Because they're putting their trust in themselves. They lack that childlike faith. Their hearts aren't dependent on God. So right there, you see the subtlety of sin? Do you see how sin is often so hidden deeply in our hearts that we can't even really see it until something happens? I mean, we can go like, like Cain, one minute making an offering to God to the next minute murdering our brother. So where's hope? Where's hope for Cain? Verses nine and 10 say this. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? And he said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. In this story, I think we see two things about God. I think we see his grace and we see his justice. So first, let's look at his grace. His grace appears in the fact that he asks questions. Again, remember last week? When Adam and Eve disobeyed God, what did he do? Did he come after them and yell at them and say, how dare you disobey what I said? No, he comes after them with questions. 
He invites them into relationship. He invites them to trust him again. He says, Adam, Adam, where are you? What have you done? And here we see him respond the exact same way to Cain. Where is your brother Abel? When God asks you a question, I'm, I'm almost certain. No, I am certain. I am certain that he's not looking for an answer. When God asks you a question, he's not trying to understand your heart. He already understands your heart. He's not trying to get information about what's going on. He knows what's going on. If God asks you a question, he's trying to get you to understand your heart. One of the things that has moved me most about this story as I've meditated on it this week is the way Cain is treated by God throughout the story. Before Cain even kills his brother, God approaches Cain with questions. When Cain is murderously angry about how Abel's life appears to be going and, and how God appears to be blessing him more, God doesn't show up to Cain and say, how dare you be angry? Who do you think you are? Do you know who I am? I will show mercy and bless whoever I want to. He doesn't say that. He sees that, that Cain is upset and he moves towards him and he asks him a question. He says, why are you so downcast? And in verse six, he literally says, your face has fallen, which is an actual Hebrew idiomatic reference to depression. So what moved me this week was thinking about God coming after Cain and counseling him. That's what he's doing. He's coming after a depressed man and offering him counsel. He's asking him questions. He's pursuing him. He's trying to get him to understand his own heart. He's trying to get him to see how, how tender his heart actually is. How susceptible it's become to lies and how those lies ultimately are going to lead him into death. God, like a good counselor, gives a depressed Cain an image, a picture, a metaphor to help him process what's actually happening in his heart. So what's the image? Well, in verse seven, God says, if you do not do well, sin is crouching at your door. It's desirous for you, but you must rule over it. You must master it. God gives Cain this image of a, of a leopard or a tiger or some kind of predatory animal crouching in the shadows, coiled and ready to spring and kill him. God's giving Cain a vivid picture of what sin does, what sin looks like, how sin operates. Sin is predatory. Sin has a deadly life of its own and its desire is to take you out. And God paints that picture for Cain. See, before Cain even acts on his anger with murder, God shows him how much his heart is in danger. When God uses this image, he's telling Cain and us that sin has this abiding, growing presence in our life. That if you commit sin, sin is not over. Sin is not simply an action, but it's this, it's this force, it's this power that has a desire to see you taken out. How many times have we, in trying to quench a besetting sin, thought to ourselves, okay, I'll just do it this one final time because I just, I, just need to get it, I just need to get out of my system and then I'll be able to resist it or then I'll be able to stay sober or whatever. But what God is saying is, is it doesn't work that way. 
Acting on sinful impulses by sinning doesn't get sin out of your system, but it, it more deeply embeds it in you. It makes it easier to do the next time. I remember the first time my buddy, and this was when we were in middle school, stole. Uh, we were at a 7-Eleven and, uh, and he got his Slurpee cup and he walked over and he put a Three Musketeer bar in the Slurpee cup and then he went over and he filled up the Slurpee and he paid for the Slurpee and left, hence getting the, the candy bar for free, um, which um, don't try it, please. Um, and, and if you think about it, you, you actually don't get as much Slurpee. So I, I mean, it probably doesn't even help. But, but I remember him doing that and I remember him kind of feeling guilty about it, but he was also kind of proud that he got away with it. And then that same buddy, I mean, it wasn't two months later that he, was, uh, that he was stealing Sublime and Green Day CDs from Circuit City like it was nobody's business. Um, and that, that was actually pretty impressive too because if, if y'all remember CDs, you know, they're like, this case is this big and then they had like that huge plastic thing around them. And so somehow he managed to get all of that out of the store without getting caught. But you see, once he stole once, it got easier to steal again and something changed in his heart. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis makes this interesting observation that first the Nazis killed the Jews because they hated them. But then, eventually, they hated the Jews because they had killed them. See, here's the point. When you sin, the sin doesn't just go away. It doesn't leave your system. The sin becomes a presence in your life. You start by doing sin, but then sin does you. So you can decide, I'm not gonna forgive my mother for, for what she did. That's sin. And it's a sin that's gonna stay with you because it will poison your relationships with other people in ways that you don't even see. It can make you more self-righteous. It can make you envious of other people's relationship with their parents, make you more cynical. It'll harden your heart. Something will change in your heart. When God paints this picture of sin crouching, he's also implying what Paul writes in Galatians 6, that your sins will find you out, that you will reap what you sow. Galatians 6, verses seven and eight say, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. This is saying that not only does sin create a presence in you, but also around you. That sin doesn't just affect you. It sets up strains in the fabric of things and the way that God made things and the way God designed us for relationship. It begins to break all that down. Haters gonna hate, 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 right? But if you think about it, haters also tend to be hated and cowards tend to be deserted and those who live by the sword die by the sword. You reap what you sow. So when you sin, that sin becomes a presence in your life. It takes shape around you and it will take you out. And God in this scene with Cain is counseling him against that. He's painting a picture so vivid for him in, in hopes that he will, he, will, he will take some action, that Cain won't let it get to that point. He tells him that this, this desire is for you and you have to rule over it. You have to master it. So what is Cain's response? 
We should avoid sin at all cost. We really should. If someone says to you, you know, there's these cancerous tumors in this part of your body, you're not gonna respond, well, one of these years I'll get to it, right? No, you do something immediately. You want it out of your body. So if someone comes up to you and says, hey, you're a very abrasive person. Or if they say, hey, whenever we go out together, you drink a lot and get out of control. Or, you know, you seem pretty dishonest to me. Or you can't keep staying at work until nine o'clock deserting your family. The response to any of that should not be, well, that's me. And then just go about your business. It's exposed. Once it's exposed, you wanna get rid of it. You wanna get it out. You wanna fight. You wanna do whatever you can. You wanna go in for surgery if necessary. God is looking at Cain and he's saying, hey, Cain, you need surgery. And what's Cain's response? Well, Cain, probably like most of us, minimizes his sin. I bet Cain didn't think he was capable of murder. And I bet we've all done things that we didn't think we were capable of. When we see our sin or when it's exposed to us, we tend to minimize it. And because of that, very rarely do any of us get the help that we need. And we need help. That's why so often an alcoholic has to hit rock bottom before she'll show up at a meeting. Or why um, a wife has to threaten divorce before a husband will look at his workaholism. But that's all sins that we can see or sins that are exposed. But this image that God also gives Cain, this image of sin crouching at the door also implies how hidden sin is. See, the lion or the tiger or the leopard is crouching. That means it's out of sight. Why? Well, because if you see a tiger, um, you probably don't have much of a chance, but you might have a little bit of a chance to get out ahead of it, right? Get away from it. But if you don't see it, if you don't know it's there, it's definitely gonna pounce on you and eat you and you're gonna die. So that means that the worst things in our life, the character flaws or the sins in our lives that will ruin us or are ruining us or making other people's lives miserable are the ones that we can't see. When I was interviewing for this job, our lead pastor, John Parker, asked me a really good question. He said, if the enemy were gonna take you out, how would he do it? And I think I answered probably something about uh, human approval or narcissism or a combination of both of those. But in reality, I don't know. See, by definition, those are the, the crouching sins in your life. The ones that are going to take you out, the ones, the ones that are gonna ruin you are the ones you don't even know, the ones you can't see. As long as you look at workaholism as conscientiousness, as long as you look at a grudge as moral outrage, or you look at materialism as ambition or arrogance as healthy self-assertion, or you look at uh, your obsession with looks as just good grooming, or your crossfitting as my body, his temple. Um, and I'm kidding, crossfitting isn't always a sin. Um, but do you see how vulnerable you are? Do you see how you're in denial? Do you see how you can't even see it? 
So what are the crouching sins in your life? Do you have a list? Do you have a list of those sins that you know you're prone to minimize? And then do you have people in your life that love you enough to tell you about the sins that you can't see? That you're in denial about? That you explain away? If you don't have a list and you don't have people who tell you the truth in love, you're already mastered by sin. God looks at Cain's angry, entitled, bitter heart and he says, Cain, please don't let sin take you out. Don't let it. It's not Abel's fault. It's not my fault. It's in you. It's your own heart. It's the way you are perceiving things. It's your own attitude that's causing your face to fall. Sin is going to master you unless you rule over it. Do you see the grace in that? Do you see the loving pursuit of God and the way he comes after Cain? We see the love of God in the story, but we also see his justice. In verse 10, it says this, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. What does that mean? Well, all through the Bible, there are places where God says the innocent shed blood is crying to him from the ground. That means God is a God of justice. It means that when justice is done, when injustice is done, God hears it. When there's violence in Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 18, God says to Abraham, he says, I'm gonna go down to the city because the outcry is so great because the cry of the oppressed in this city, because of the violence being done against people in this city is so great. Terrible things are happening there. See, God can't shrug off sin or injustice. He can't just let it go. He's a righteous God. He's a just God. And so when, when, when innocent blood is shed, it cries out to God to make it right. And he can't deny that because to deny that would be deny his character. And so in this story, we see an absolutely just God, yet an absolutely loving and gracious God. So how in the world is God gonna save us? How will he be able to make good on his promise in Genesis 3.15? Here's how. Years later, another man showed up who was a lot like Abel. Because he came into this world, he came into a nation filled with canes, people who were religiously observant, who were always bringing their offerings, who were always honoring the sacrificial system. And yet this man who was kind and pure of heart came in among them and they hated them and they killed him. In the book of Hebrews, it says, when Jesus Christ shed his blood, an innocent victim of injustice. His blood cried out, but it cried out in a different kind of way. Hebrews 12, the writer says, you come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus Christ was in a sense, the ultimate Abel because he was the only person who was truly innocent. The only person who was truly innocent who came into this world and the canes of the world could not stand him and so they killed him. But he didn't die only as a victim of injustice like Abel. 
He also died by design. He died on purpose. He died in our place to pay for our injustices. Why? So that each one of us, any one of us who says we believe in Jesus, who says, Father, forgive me. Forgive me for the ways in which I've acted like Cain. Forgive me for the ways in which I've caused hurt and pain in the world. Forgive me for the ways in which I've been a part of injustice. Forgive me because Jesus has died in my place. You know what that means? It means that God can never condemn us. And I've said this before, but it bears repeating often. It would be unjust for God to punish us for the same sins twice. If Jesus has paid for your sins, you're forgiven. The reason it says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins it doesn't say he is faithful and merciful. He is faithful and gracious. It says he is faithful and just. If Jesus has shed his blood for you and you have asked God to forgive you of your sins because of Jesus shed blood, God could never, ever, ever be angry at you. He could never condemn you because that would be unjust. And again, that goes against his character. Therefore, the justice of God now demands that there is no condemnation for you as long as you live and that you will never perish. That's the hope. That's the hope that Abel had. He had hope that he had a God who would save him, not because of what he did, but just because. And Cain was so wrapped up in being his own savior and in, in, in the world all operating fairly or how he wanted it to operate. But you see, if we get what Abel got, if we see what Jesus has done for us, if we get that, we get our hearts back. Not only that, we get a new heart. We get a heart that is so secure in his love that we are no longer like Cain. We no longer look around grumpy. We no longer always compare ourselves to others. We're no longer angry because someone is getting ahead of us. We're no longer basing our worth on our performance. We'll become open-hearted and free like Abel. Don't you want that? The world needs us to be Abel's. It needs that. Because there are so many Cains out there. There are so many Cains out there killing each other, talking bad about each other, elbowing each other out, lying about each other. They're miserable. Sin is mastering them. But the gospel says, no matter what you've done, no matter how Cain-like you've acted, even Cain himself, Cain himself, all Cain had to do was to listen to the wonderful counselor. He just had to take heed of what was being said to him and repent. Ask for help. Say, God, thank you for exposing my heart. Now, how do I move towards others uh, to, to, to kind of help me process this, to help me move in a way that makes my heart more open to you and not less? All he had to do was repent. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And not only that, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that no matter how 
dark our hearts are, no matter how much pain is there, no matter how much resistance, that you will constantly come after us. You'll constantly show us our hearts and say, I want to give you a new heart. And Father, I do pray that we would surrender and repent of the ways in which we act like Cain and the ways in which we try to save ourselves. And we would be like Abel and we would just trust you. We would just say, God, take whatever. Take, take it all because you are a good dad. Because you love me. You love me enough to come after me in the person of Jesus. Father, make us a community of people who believe that so much so that when we go out into the world, we're Abel's. Give us a voice uh, that speaks like your voice to a world full of people that need hope. In Jesus' name, amen.